and welcome to another edition of the Lifefulness Podcast. It is me, Sanderson, I, me, myself, and I. And uh, yeah, I've got a really awesome conversation for you today. Uh, the uh, author of a book, and I mean, great title for the book, Why the Fuck Can't I Change? Why the fuck indeed? Why can't you change? Why can't I change? How many times have you stood at the top of an imaginary hill in your mind and screamed, why the fuck can't I change into the void as you go and I, I go and look for uh, my phone and it's not just my phone because my phone is a symbol of how many things that I've lost. I'm a guy who's lost five passports. No, I believe it's now six passports, more passports than anyone I know until I start hanging out with other ADHD people and they've lost children, but not in the dark way, in the careless way. And you ask yourself, why the fuck can't I change? It is a question which is at the heart of, you know, human experience. And uh, luckily we've got an amazing person who can give you some answers to that. You can't change because you're a fucking dick. End of podcast. No, not that. Uh, so uh, Gabia Tolichetti uh, is, she is a neuroscientist. She went and got her PhD at uh, Coventry University, I believe. And She's now a coach. And so what she does is she goes and brings these insights from neuroscience. And that is why James and I loved this conversation, because it it really does go and get these things into like a, a way that you can understand. Oh, I'm doing this, but like, that's not how my brain works. No wonder I can't do this. I'm trying to change all at once. That goes and gets the amygdala angry. And so I'm sure you are going to love this podcast and uh and, and it certainly already helped me in describing what we do and really thinking about it because neuroscience can be so powerful. And uh, one thing that it really made uh, me notice was that uh, yeah, so much of the work that we do at the Lifefulness Project, because not only is this a podcast, but we also have small groups where people meet online to create connection by discussing life's big issues. Uh, go and check it out, lifefulness.io uh, forward slash membership. Uh, and yeah, like the stuff that we're doing is uh, is really aligned with neuroscience, uh, you know, because we go and look at the congregation and spiritual communities and how we can adapt it in a way which is totally secular. And yeah, like basically the congregation is an is a machine for making your brain work in the way that you want to in many ways. I think you're going to love this conversation. So time to get out the way. Tell us what you think about it, by the way. Hit us up on social media, like whatever it is. We really want to hear from you. Uh, I'm going to get out of the way. Here's Gabia. We have uh, Dr. Gabia Tolikiti, and this is the podcast event, which has been the easiest to name because we have called it Why the Fuck Can't I Change, which is the title of your book. And you look at the neuroscience. Oh, oh. She has it in her hand, the, uh, those listening in the audio version. Uh, and it is a great look uh, from a neuroscientific point of view about why it can be so tricky to change. So uh, we're going to start off with the question we always kick this off with, which is probably not the one you get asked in most neuroscience uh, uh, sort of uh, spaces. Uh, what was the uh, religious background 
to your childhood uh, and spiritual, it can be spiritual, it can be philosophical. Yeah, what was your sort of uh, background? Uh, in theory, we were Catholics, but my mom was quite sort of easygoing about it. So we went to the church when we wanted to, and we weren't like very strict Catholics as such. I remember as a child at school, we had religion classes, which was Catholic mainly. And we learned to, to pray. And as a child, when I was very little, I used to pray before sleep. Uh, and I suppose we were curious about religion, but we were sort of, we took the best of it without being trapped by restrictions of it, if you, if you like. That, that goes and leads us on to our, always, the second question we always have. Yeah, so what, what do you think uh, in this secularizing world that we're in, what sort of lessons do you think that people could learn from religions? Well, I think religion can be very good companion. Uh, I remember as, as a child, like when the times were rough, we did pray, actually. And it was nice to have somebody that you thought you could talk to. We were like skeptical what did exist, what didn't exist. But in the moments when it was hard, which needless to say, we all have at times, especially in the kind of mind of a child, it was nice to have that somebody or some, something what felt pure and good. Uh, we didn't really necessarily focus on the punishing God and things like that. We were more like, okay, God is there. He loves you unconditionally. He's there whenever you need it. That was my kind of perception of God as a child. So it was kind of nice to have that. Um, and and uh, my, uh, we have five kids in, in my family. Um, so, so my, some of my siblings are still practicing Catholics. Um, and when I go back to my mom's, we all go to church, you know, for Easter, Christmas, and, and we pray and things like that. So, so we do some of it, but I think we kind of adjust basically as we go along. But, but I think, I think in my family has been the kind of reoccurring thread when things were really rough and things were not in our um, hands of control. We did pray, actually, we seeked out, we, we believed more at these times, um, which is probably hypocritical, but it was sort of important. It was something that helped us to push through. Oh, there's one thing which often gets said in uh, sort of, uh, you know, atheists will be dismissive of religion and be like, oh, it's just a crutch. And you're like, yeah, Sometimes people need crutches. Yeah. You don't go into a hospital and like, oh, oh, what? You're giving people crutches, are you? Mm. What, to help them get through the difficult times? Mm. The, uh, so what we wanted to do was before we dived into this excellent book, uh, well, really sort of as we did it, was to start off by just, you've got, what I love about it is it's very clear way of going and connecting the sort of neuroscience to sort of live situations we're in. And, uh, and I was going to do that, but I just, there's one thing that you said uh, to begin with when you said that feeling of, uh, you know, always having someone that loved you, a God, which always cared for you. And it just really made me think about what you wrote about being in a loving, attached environment. And so, like, it'd be quite interesting, like, what is the, what would be the neuroscientific benefit of always feeling that you're loved, like from your combining your sort of uh your scientific insight into that thing into this if we talk about brain chemistry um there is one 
neurotransmitter or chemical in the brain which helps neurons to communicate is called oxytocin. We get, I, I get oxytocin when I cuddle my daughter, when I cuddle my husband, when we're with people whom we truly love and care for. But oxytocin can be also secreted in a deep prayer when we really feel connected. Whatever that is that we connected, it could be deeper in a self. It could be some somebody we imagine being outside of ourselves. It could be maybe our loved ones that are no longer with us. In our mind, there is no difference. You know, as long as you truly feel that connection, because at the end of the day, all the feelings are created there. All the kind of our experiences ultimately are created there. So, so. Um, there is a real benefit to that. Now, oxytocin, very interestingly, it buffers us when the times are stressful, it buffers our brain for the negative effects of stress. So when we're going through really stressful times, the brain plasticity is reduced, which makes us less capable to change, less resilient, less uh, our cognitive abilities are not as agile. It, but oxytocin, when we're in a loving and caring relationships, or if we get oxytocin hit from other sources, such as prayer, connection to, to, to whoever that is we, we have connection with, it kind of counteracts those effects of stress. So brain plasticity is preserved. And so it's just things like this. So, for instance, yeah, the, the idea behind the Life Wilderness Project is really looking at, like, what can mm. we go and learn from religion? And that certainly from an attachment parenting point of view of, like, feeling that you're always feeling that you're always safe, mm. feeling that you always you've got like you actually people actually picture it like a relationship. Like that's one of the things I love from our specific point of view in the Life Wilderness Project is really like pinpointing the sort of effects that it could have. And like when you sort of spoke about how the, in when we're in a stressful situation, our amygdala, which is the part which we, it's linked to fear and detecting threats, then that gets stronger, which isn't great for us. And our sort of human part, the prefrontal cortex. And by the way, guys, if this is your first time you're listening, we're going to get into these specific areas and we're gonna, you're gonna have a clearly uh, labeled idea of what's going on in the brain. That's our promise, neuroscience explained in 50 minutes. Uh, but uh, about how uh, the prefrontal cortex is able to operate better when we're in that loving environment. So creating a loving God that always protects you is like a great mm, little mental yeah, trick to have. Yeah. To add there, you know, like coming back to, to Mikla you mentioned, it's very important to notice. Like, so if this is a real-sized human brain. Um, Listeners, she is holding oh, yeah, a brain. Oh, yeah, actually, some of you can't see model. it, right? <laughs> but the ones who can, I'll show you again. So so it's it's not impressive-looking organ. It's By the way, I'm showing the real brain, really. No, that's not this plastic. <laughs> uh, it's freshly taken out of somebody yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like a lot of uh sort of pictures of people on the wall attached by red string and sort of blood on her hands exactly exactly and so at the very you know if you put your hands on your forehead and you cover the smartest part of your brain called prefrontal cortex and this area enable us to be who we are crucial parts of aspects of our personality are created that willpower motivation uh all this what we call executive functions, so ability to rationally think and assess and so on. But also this area is activated when we're in deep meditation. Mm. 
There is different centers within prefrontal cortex. Some are more selfish and make everything about ourselves while others are more like connecting with the world around us and those deeper connections which are activated when we meditate. Now, deeper within the brain, we have to go quite deep inside. We find brain regions what, what are grouped in so-called mammal brain. Mammal brain are this... By the way, I'm just going to... Yeah, just this is sort of exactly what we want you to do, uh, which is just like that. Go through, like, as you... like. I don't know if I've just interrupted you doing the thing that you're meant to do, but like, just right, like, because we really want to get into what is it which is going on in the human brain, which makes it hard for us to change. And in your book, you went through the three parts of the brain, Talk, talk us through. Yes, yeah, so, so, so we spoke already about one area of so-called human brain or neocortex, which is prefrontal cortex. There is a lot more to it. There's a lot more regions, but they all kind of are capable of change, really resourceful, enable us to connect and feel empathy and all that. But deeper within, there is brain regions called mammal brain, which mainly care about safety. They only want us to be safe. It's like a small, they think like a small child, like my three-year-old daughter. Uh, they freak out very easily. They can't understand the complex world. Um, and that region is, is, it can be really, really active if we're triggered. So if there is something that uh, we are not, the things are not familiar to us, like if there is lots of change going on. If we are depressed, that region is very, very active, especially amygdala. And it's a bit of a vicious cycle. When the when amygdala gets activated, it, it, it finds more reasons to be upset or anxious or angry about. So it's kind of, it's called downward spiral, in other words. And there is other region, which is a bit less interesting, called the lizard brain, which basically takes care of digestion and, and, and breathing and so on, so vital functions. Now, when amygdala really hates and like um, novelty and it hates being kind of feeling that you're all on your own, especially when you're in challenging times. So that brings me back a bit with the previous question. And that's the reason I'm mentioning it so soon is when we feel connection with somebody, amygdala, amygdala almost needs a parental figure that's there to protect, especially when we go through challenges. And of course, if your child and have a loving and caring parents, that's brilliant. But imagine if you're a child in a family where that's not possible, or if you're adult and you no longer can expect your parents to fix things for you, um, then suddenly you need to sort of uh, self-parent. You need to kind of create safety to amygdala within your own brain. And prefrontal cortex, especially that region, which, which is activated when we meditate, is capable to do that. So it actually can soothe and calm amygdala down. And there is various ways to do it. Some people use it, you know, via cognitive techniques. Uh, some people do so-called inner child healing techniques, uh, but also prayer meditation and sort of feeling connected with things that are bigger than yourself can be a very helpful way to soothe amygdala as well. James, I would love, having just heard that, the, so James is a the leader of a non-religious congregation in uh, St. Louis with the Lifefulness Project is an online non-religious congregation. And like when you're hearing about like what the amygdala needs, how much does that make you think about what you do in your community? And, and also that the, like, and sometimes that's literal, like the, when you're in your, like there's, so like small groups, which is a huge part of 
sort of congregation we do them at the life on this project as well of just someone where you can just say what's going on in your life and then someone doesn't look at you like what you do that Ugh, gross which is our biggest fear is like these sort of chimps with pretensions uh it's just uh yeah it, it, it really it resonated so much and so yeah, it'd be good, but like using that sort of three part model, you've got the, so just to be clear, like the human part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, that is the bit which, where you should be able to make change in a certain way. Uh, and, but then the mammal brain is the one which is sort of fighting against well, it. Let, let's go to change. I think there is yeah. a bit more to mention when we talk about change. So yes, uh, prefrontal cortex, not only once change, but it needs progress. And prefrontal cortex is trying to bring us back who we are. It wants to, for us to reach our full potential, to achieve our aspirations and goals. So it doesn't necessarily want a sort of change just because. It wants a change that kind of matters to us. That's part of our identity. And for each of us, that's a different thing, right? So, so, so prefrontal cortex is acutely aware what things belong to you as a person and what things are just external noise basically and that area is firstly needed to for you to sort of be authentic in who you are and create a deliberate authentic change amygdala on the on the other hand it, it just wants you to do things that doesn't threaten your safety and change if it's very sudden can really cause that uh, disruption. It can cause, um, it can freak amygdala out in other words. Now, however, if we do change in small steps and with lots of soothing and calming for amygdala, that's not an issue. Those two regions, they need to kind of help each other out in order for change to happen. If there is at any point a fight between prefrontal cortex and amygdala, amygdala is going to win. And the reason being that amygdala can hijack or switch off prefrontal cortex because those two regions are connected with one another, but there is about 10 times more connections from amygdala to prefrontal cortex that, that, than the other way around. It's stuff like that, which I just found so interesting of like that feeling, which I, I mean, I'm gonna, so you sent me an email which said I'd spelt your name wrong in something. And truth be told, it was a, 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 not an intern of mine, a freelancer, but it was quite weird. I was looking at it. I couldn't see it for ages because it was the J and the I was switched. Yeah, I was, like, on earth is it? I was like, it's, it's, where am I spelling it wrong? But that's because I'm a moron. But uh, that was something I could do. And then I got an email from another guest uh, saying that I'd done something else wrong on an invite. And for some reason, that one just like really, like, and just knowing in your book that you've got 10 times as much like panic. What happened to you? What happened to you when you got those emails? Oh, How yeah, yeah, yes. Oh, uh, I, I had to go for a walk. I had to go and get like, luckily I'm in a... Uh, a better place. One of the things that I used was something from your book, which was the uh, the breathing thing of uh, just having more outward out breaths. So for people who are at the event, we did like, and that your uh, yeah, that you expect, but like if you're breathing out for longer than you're breathing in, your brain's like someone's clearly not chasing you so you can relax so I went yeah. and did and that's a perfect example so amygdala doesn't know 
how big or small things are. It makes a big deal out of things because amygdala's job is to point out our mistakes and to point out negativity in the world and in other people. Is the amygdala my dad? <laughs> Perhaps. Uh. What's your dad's name? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the great guy, great guy. Yeah, so, so therefore, so amygdala kind of skews the reality, it distorts the reality in the way the negativity is enhanced and all the things we've done well or positivity is sort of ignored. So imagine, imagine how many people do you normally have listening to your podcasts? Uh, about a thousand or so. Okay, well imagine out of a thousand people, 900 people or let's say 990 said either didn't comment anything or thumbs up great podcast that was brilliant really informative now imagine 10 of them said it was shit i didn't learn anything that was nonsense which of those would you like and you need to make a conclusion how the podcast went Oh, I mean, it's the criticism every single time, which lives with you. And you're just like, does this guy, does this guy know me? <laughs> Calculate the percentage. Yeah. Calculate the percentage. I did that. I had to do that recently. I, I did um, a talk at Google and, and uh, somebody commented. There was, you know, lots of thumbs up. And at that point, when I looked, it was 8,000 something people watched it. And most people left thumbs up, right? Or, or nothing. And they were like, I think it was seven thumbs down at that point. And initially I was like, oh, seven people didn't like it. But then it's calculated the percentage and started to laugh. I was like, well, it's less than 1%. <laughs> I was like, well, <laughs> to be honest. And at the end of the day, you don't know what's happening in those people's brain. Hey, might, they might be really knowledgeable. They might, you know, kind of have read a lot more. So for them, it might be too trivial. However, they might just feel like, oh, I don't like her look. I don't, I don't like the way she looks or I feel miserable. Somebody just hurt me. I'm going to hurt somebody back, right? So who knows what's going on for those people? And it could be, so, so when we tend to kind of read the stories, but it's not us, it's our amygdala. Now, prefrontal cortex, it's a different story. Prefrontal cortex is the part of, of me which said, calculate the percentage to get the objective view. And at the end of the day, if you're going to expose yourself and your information out there, they, you have to be prepared. A certain percentage of people would not really re relate and resonate with that information. So the choice is there, whether you're going to, you know, keep yourself in that vulnerable state and still share the message which you think is important, or whether you're going to let your amygdala run the show. If, you, if we have let our amygdala run the show, we wouldn't have ever moved out of our parents' homes. We wouldn't have ever went to university. We wouldn't have ever went on the first date with anyone. So in other words, it, it, when we kind of follow what amygdala tells us to do, we shrink and we don't do things we want to do, which kind of creates, as I mentioned, downward spiral because then we feel bad about ourselves. We have a lot of criticism to ourselves because we just don't live up to our potential. And therefore there's more and more triggers over time. Now, when we do things which we're afraid of, such as public speaking for some people, go, you know, after you've been hurt number over and over again in relationships, going on a date with somebody it could be very scary things for somebody. Uh, I don't know, having children 
after you've had maybe quite rotten childhood yourself and things like that, which can constantly kind of, you know, trigger and, and amygdala and start that negative mind chat. What happens? We bit by bit, we educate amygdala and show to amygdala, it's not that scary after all. And even if any of everybody who said that this podcast is shit, we're not going to die, right? Like we, we're going to be at the end of the day, oh, well, but we could have done better. Right? But we, we do maybe... not want we do not want to encourage the, the <laughs> this isn't like please do not test this theory by leaving lots of negative reviews. This is not I, I would learn something, but I would rather learn in a different way. This is, so, this is reverse psychology. Oh gosh, am I this way? Now everybody's gonna say, oh no, the Gabia, the podcast was amazing. What are you saying? <laughs> We're gonna have a flood of one-star reviews now. So, so can, uh, I was wondering if you could give us a specific example of how we could change a behavior using the insights that you've been giving us. So let's say, you know, I'm trying to eat more healthily, just, you know, theoretically, let's just posit that. Um, and okay. and so, then mm -hmm. uh, how do I do it and how does it relate to what you've been saying about the brain? Okay, so so first of all, with which you have changed your nutrition and your eating habits, in order to not freak out your amygdala, you need to incorporate change in a gradual way. So maybe instead of eating, let's say, a pastry for breakfast, perhaps cook yourself porridge or eggs or something healthier. Now we need to incorporate change gradually and do that for, let's say, a week or few weeks till it becomes a new habit. Once that became new habit, add something else and do like gradual substitution. So in that way, amygdala wouldn't freak out, but that's not enough. So that's that's just part of the game. So there is at least five five different things to include. In, in, okay, so account. the first bit is, is do small changes over time gradually. rather than everything at once. Okay, exactly. got it. Secondly, in order for you to change behavior, you need to develop new brain networks, which take time and repetition, most importantly. So whichever, whatever change you're trying to do, the more frequent you do it, the better. So for example, instead of, if somebody is trying to exercise, if they say, oh, I'll, I'll go for a two hour jog today, but then they don't go for a jog for two months, that's not gonna be useful. But if they go for 10 minute jog every day, that's much more beneficial. So we want to incorporate frequency at small amounts as opposed to lots and at once. So small, secondly, regularly rather than regularity okay. helps to build and strengthen neural networks and we need to continue that for a number of weeks till that be the network becomes strong now how many weeks it depends a good rule of thumb is between one month and three months depending on how complex the change is with eating somewhat healthier one month is more than enough now with with trying to change relationship patterns three to six months might might be even too short, right? So, so it really depends on what exactly we're trying to change. So, so duration of doing that has to be specific to what we're trying to do. Also, we can't change too much at once. Um, in order for us to change, as I mentioned, we need to use our neocortex to start with before mammal brain can take over those tasks. Neocortex needs a lot of energy and needs a lot of time to replenish and recover. So if we actually are trying to change too many things all at once, we deplete our resources from prefrontal cortex 
And then we just fall back to the old patterns of the mammal, mammal brain. So that's another component. And, and that was, sorry, just because so that, that was something which really was very interesting to me, just the amount of, the amount of energy that learning takes. The, the, I mean, I'm sure most people who listen to this podcast will have like heard sometime that like the brain, that we have got to eat so much stuff, or whatever it is, because our brain is using so much energy. And then this, this front part of your brain is really sort of like needs even more of it, but just how like, how much, uh, yeah, how much time that takes and then how that can be shut off, how if it goes and then triggers your friend and mine, the amygdala. And mm. so, it, yeah, it's like for these things, for me, what I really like about this is, and I think this is one of the reasons why neuroscience is quite useful, is that it does go and, and maybe it is a, uh, <laughs> maybe it's, it's like uh, not as simple as that, but it helps you understand why these things might be happening yeah, in your yeah, brain exactly. and then maybe forgiving yourself and then sort of like it, it's a, there's an explanatory power which I well, really yeah so I think what what I like about neuroscience most it helps us to get to know ourselves better mm. and what I often see most frequently the biggest challenge to change is not those kind of limitations of the brain, but us wanting the brain to be different to what it is. So us trying to kind of, you know, shape our brain into something else. So we try to change lots of things at once. We, we don't care about the energy management of the brain. We expect to sleep very little and still be very rational and, and all that. So we kind of disregard almost what our brain needs. Of course, sometimes we just don't, simply don't know it. So understanding what your brain needs and how it functions can help you not only understand yourself better, but then change things in according how the brain functions, as opposed to keep on banging your head against the wall against how the brain really works. And banging your head against the wall is just not what your brain needs. No, either. and it, it can no damage. No one's asked yeah, for that. Yeah, it can that's... damage your prefrontal cortex as yes. well. It's, I mean, it's the worst of all worlds, frankly. That's how you got uh, the brain that you showed us, actually. <laughs> the uh, one exactly. thing. One thing that uh, I thought it'd be good as well, uh, and, and maybe sort of as we're going to occasionally sort of go and make it practical, but then get into some of the sort of bits and bobs, the knobbly wobbly bits inside, which I think is a technical term. Uh, the uh, it'd be like so we've heard about the amygdala, which is the uh, nasty worry center in the limbic system, which is the mammal brain. I'm loving your book; it makes me feel so much smarter. Uh, the, uh, uh, but then you've also got the nuclear accumbens, and hold on, the ventral tegmental area, which is to do with pleasure in like uh, in the brain. It'd be great to go and sort of just help contextualize this. For yeah, okay. So let's let's add an, the last step, the fifth step to ch in, incorporating change. So you, you remember, right, the things I mentioned just before. Now, the last step is to figure out why were you eating unhealthily in the first place? What were you getting out of it, James, right? So, so firstly, we need to figure out the rewards we were meeting of this habit, because if you weren't getting anything out of it, you wouldn't have been doing it. So wh why do we eat sugary snacks? Because they trigger reward centers of the brain. Feel amazing. Also, why do we eat sugary snacks? Because when we are scared or lonely or whatever, they help us change emotional state. 
Why do we procrastinate? Because we might be overwhelmed and don't know how to deal with emotions and so on and so forth. So it's very specific to your situation and specific habits. So each habit follows the loop. There is a trigger, then you do a habit and you get a reward. You get something out of it. And if the habit is triggering your reward centers in particular, that's very hard habit to change. And just kind of completely quitting the habit without replacing it with anything else is just asking for later on, you know, going back to the habit, opening the fridge and eating all cake, basically, instead of one piece of cake. So, so, so in order to really create a lasting change, we meet exact same need that our brains were meeting with that habit, but in a more constructive way. If you're out of eating, you know, unhealthy food, you just physically get pleasure and trigger your reward centers. Well, your healthy alternatives have to be equally delicious, actually. So you might need to really figure out what foods you enjoy from the healthy alternatives. I mean, that is James lives in America, I think, where they have taken making garbage taste delicious to the, a level which has never actually, I don't think, been achieved by anywhere in the humanity. So that's a tough one. It is very, very impressive their ability to make things delicious here so what so really that sounds like a really difficult bit because i can imagine myself changing slowly over time and doing a little bit each day and kind of getting to a point where i'm eating a bit healthier but it is that sort of food craving and being like well i really really need to eat this thing now to feel better okay. about my day right so which is the challenging part so what like what do you do about that is it really the case that there there are things that are, are sufficiently triggering of the pleasure parts of your brain that are not like pizza does that really yeah well let's but we can change our perception and that can actually ruin the pleasure of eating pizza for you Okay, so if you write down all the drawbacks to you, your loved ones, and anything that's important to you of you eating pizza to the quantities, let's, let's imagine, let's imagine you eating pizza every night. Okay, let's make it up. Now, if you continue eating pizza every night, what would be the drawback? So we're trying to trigger pain centers associated with you eating pizza every night. So you're and trying to then, make that feel worse as well as the other thing feel better? Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay. So we're trying to kind of, you know, a little bit rewire brain with just our thinking and perception. Then choose another alternative, which you also like, maybe not as much as pizza, but let, what could that be? Um, thing. You know, there's not many things like I like Thai food. That's good. Curry. Okay. Well, yeah. There yeah. we go. That's great. Yeah. So, so if you choose uh what is of thai which meal of thai food do you really like there's like a chicken and basil i love that thai basil is so good okay perfect oh, i'm gonna get so it i'm ordering it right you... now while we're on the podcast okay so perfect and write down as many benefits as you could think of to yourself and any anyone that matters to you and any any area of life that matters to you for you eating healthier for you making those choices this is, I love this exercise because often yeah, I've gone and done these things. You say, write down pros and cons. And you're like, write down 50 and <laughs> write down like really 50 pros. Yeah, 50 well, the brain is smart. You can't fool the brain easily. And this is not entirely fooling the brain. This is using your prefrontal cortex to actually get more objective view. 
right? Because it's your mammal brain that makes you believe that is in denial that pizza is basically junk food, right? Oh, I'm sure like there is protein in cheese. Not much, okay? Let's be honest. <laughs> Uh, so, so it's your, using your prefrontal cortex to get objectivity and to really shine the light onto it. Um, and of course, you know, not to say it's not, I'm not trying to say, James, don't eat pizza ever again. No, I'm just saying, just not every night. Okay, we need, we need to kind of change that a bit. Now, some people actually might need to go a few steps ahead further if if for somebody they, they're dairy and gluten intolerant and they keep eating foods that have dairy and gluten that can cause inflammation in the gut and also inflammation in the brain which later on can lead to even schizophrenia like symptoms but more frequently depression problems with memory and mood disorders so for some people actually they need to sort of do you know cold turkey type of type of quitting things on some things not everything or find at least alternatives that don't have those ingredients but in most of the cases we still can find the moderation but what we do most frequently will produce the results and the way the reason we ask for 50 benefits because we, we want to create strong enough strong enough links and check my book james i give you the tip how to write 50 benefits i'm not gonna tell anyone now yeah, yeah, yeah. check my book get the book i mean they don't want to give a lot though away. why buy the cow well, when you can have the milk for free exactly so so yeah so how we make 50 is actually we look at each area of your life mm. i'm pretty yeah. sure we could think of benefits related to career so for example if i eat pizza my brain gets cloudy, I can't perform as well. So it definitely negatively impacts my performance at work. Uh, how if I had pizza right mm. before this interview, I wouldn't be able to handle questions very effectively. Therefore, probably, you know, less people would have ordered my book and so, so keep on going basically till you actually come up. So after your career, go into your relationships, onto, you know, if you have children, mm. onto your children. That's interesting. So it's not just like the immediate effects of doing the behavior or not no, doing it, but no. the expanded how it expanded affects your whole one. life so when you you see a big picture and you realize wow so that's not just a simple individual action that makes me put on weight it's a lot more to it weight putting on weight is the smallest you know negative mm. uh, influence of that if you like you know and and so so kind of really expanding but in a way that is actually is real you can't just you know like affirmations wouldn't work or no pizza curvy no pizza you know that wouldn't work because so, the brain doesn't buy into those meaningless statements you really have to look into your specific life based on how you if you if you don't get cloudy held the head when you eat pizza don't write that down i do but you know if it doesn't apply to you so in that way we will kind of activate pain centers and suddenly instead that kind of you would still get that immediate physiological reward eating pizza, but there will be other components which would, wouldn't be, feel as rewarding. But also, if you add 50 benefits of eating healthy alternatives, then suddenly you, instead of, you know, when you're not allowing yourself to eat pizza, it's not that pain centers are activated because you're depriving yourself of something delicious. You get some activation in reward centers as well because you give yourself something that is actually beneficial to you. And not only like beneficial from, oh, this is all good, I, I kind of believe it's important, but you actually have an evidence how that is beneficial. 
and, and it, I think one thing which is I came across time and time again for me was this how like unless you're feeling safe then you're just constantly you know that when you're talking about how to change habits is the is, you know and, and James says oh what happens when I'm stressed well that's your amygdala rearing up again and then it's overriding the sort of uh, prefrontal cortex and then it's getting in the way or else even uh if you get stressed, then it prevents your uh, the nuclear accumbens and the uh, something vegetable vegetable area, uh, the ventral tegmental area. That's it. Uh, from uh, absorbing dopamine, and so suddenly something which was pleasurable is no longer pleasurable because you're stressed. And it's just that sort of like insight, and and again, sort of going back to. Uh, the work that so we do at the Life on This Project in building community and of like just so much of it is about like making people feel safe. And it's such a, it's such a cheap thing to say that, uh, oh, you know, safe spaces or really, but like as like the brain science literally shows that if unless you feel safe you're not able to act like a human you're not able to sort of go and uh let the best sides of yourself come out and i and i go and see this in whether you can uh like go and see it in people who are sort of poor finding it harder to make good life choices like there's loads of studies about how you end up sort of you know like for all sorts of reasons, not being able to do the things which would go and get you furthest in life. And then, but then even it shows up in uh, people who have got more than enough, but because we go and show, we're going shown all these different scary negative messages, like people are like, oh God, I've got, I've, I've got loads now, but what if I don't, what if I lose my job? What if my, if, if, if my son ends up like those poor people with nothing, then he's going to be fucked. So I've got to go and start working more. And so I can't pay taxes or do whatever else it might be. And so it just really made me like aware of how, why so much of this work is about providing that sense of people being okay. And you know that that being really the bulk of like our yeah sort of work and and in a way we sometimes it's definitely hard i could think of situations when it's really hard to create that safety imagine if you're domestic abuse situation or if you're so poor that you really can't you don't know whether you can buy food for yourself and your children right so i can imagine certain situations where that constant amygdala triggering is a natural state the brain is designed to point out that life is shit at the moment, you know, if you don't change anything, you're really gonna struggle. Now, but the, for majority of us, a lot of those triggers are imagined or perceived, right? So for example, we think, oh, uh, what if I can't pay my mortgage, I'll be homeless. Now, majority of us don't end up homeless, Next, some might, unfortunately, uh, but majority of us still figure out, you know, if something, if the things go, go to worse, for example, you know, we would move him back with parents or, you know, like we, we kind of come up with the solutions which are still okay. They might not be ideal, but they're okay. But when we get attached to certain situation or certain outcome, we fear if we lose that, we're dead. And amygdala believes that 
If, if I lose job, that's it, I die. If somebody doesn't like me, I die. If a person doesn't show up in the date, I die. That's how amygdala feels, right? It, we don't die. Um, and, and, you know, I can think of few ex exceptions where you I could, I could think. Sometimes, sometimes, guys, sometimes you die. Sometimes we die. But, that's, but most that's the of big it, message of this podcast. Sometimes you die, uh, most times you don't, and then you do at the end. Yeah, but <laughs> so therefore... We need to educate our amygdala bit by bit. And that's why we have that connection with between prefrontal cortex and amygdala. And there is multiple techniques that are helpful for that. So inner child healing is one of them. Is basically this technique, how to develop that inner parenting voice within you, which is caring and loving and considerate, which tells your amygdala, I know this person didn't show up to the date, but actually... Would you even want to be with somebody who would do that to somebody else, right? So who gives you bigger perspective, or who provides you love, unconditional love, no matter what, who actually says, you know what, if, if, if you don't, if you, this job doesn't work out, there will be plenty other jobs to apply for and so on and so forth. So kind of the inner dialogue and inner mind sort of um, changing perspective can change to calm amygdala down. So we don't always need to sort of uh, control our world because often we can't. And, that, and that's, that's how, you know, if we are, and that's a big issue now, you know, nowadays, given how we are used to kind of being in charge of things often, especially in the Western world, and, and suddenly feeling out of control, like with pandemic, we've seen that a lot of people really struggled because there's nothing we can do to control it. And suddenly we feel out of depth, out of depth, because I send amygdala is being triggered all the time. I can't see my family. I can't see my friends. I can't go for a drink to the restaurant. It's horrible, isn't it, right? But if you look back, it's like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe my amygdala is thinking that I'm going to die if I don't have mojito with my friend. Mm. The and, and then to that point, like you've so mentioned that thing on... Uh, inner child therapy and one thing you speak about is amygdala soothing uh then and it'd be great to go and sort of just like actually share with some people like what like one what is this idea of amygdala soothing and then like what can you do to make it happen it is time for a cheeky ad break from your sponsors of this podcast the life on this project so uh, yeah just wanted to go and give a big shout out again for the lifefulness community it is uh, an online group coaching community where we meet twice a month to go and talk about life's big issues and to just be really open with what's going on and after that conversation to turn the insights which come from it into action Yes, uh, action groups. That's not what we call them. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we don't just like talking about this stuff. We like doing it and building the community. And so you can go and find the details below. Kind of mention it again because this is why we do this. And back to Gabia. Amygdala soothing is just kind of a summary of number of techniques that can help our mammal brain to feel safe. And imagine if your middle is like a small child, like my daughter, three-year-old child. If you try telling, explaining your child about the mortgage and financial situation, it's not going to get it, right? So it needs really basic things. So what things can help are any oxytocin-inducing activities, such as cuddling, hugging somebody, uh, even cuddling actually a toy or a blanket or a pillow 
actually still induces some oxytocin. Uh, having a pet, stroking a pet induces oxytocin, having a hot bath or hot shower. So if you feel really anxious and really kind of unwell in yourself, just run yourself a bubbly bath or jump under the hot shower. That would, would help your amygdala to calm down a bit. Breathing exercises, very brilliantly as Anderson led us through at the beginning of, of the activity, uh, where we kind of, you know, had, had to slow down the breathing out because when the breathing changes, amygdala gets a proof that actually there isn't a predator trying to eat you. It's okay. If you have time to breathe, it means it's okay. Um, so things like that, but loving and caring relationships, caring conversation, like I'm sure for, for some people, this, this conversation at the beginning when we were just smiling and talking and everybody felt comfortable dancing or doing whatever they wanted. That's amygdala soothing. So being just a feeling accepted for who you are and being around people who are not trying to fix you. And that's quite interesting because especially when we're in sort of amygdala dominant state, it doesn't help if somebody says, okay, how can I fix you? How can I help you? We need to sort this out. It makes amygdala worse because it invalidates us. It makes us feel like you're not good enough as you are, that's a message amygdala is getting. So being around people who say, you know what, I know you feel, you feel rubbish, but how about let's have a cup of tea? Let's just sit together. Let's do whatever we can together. That's very amygdala soothing. Because then we feel that even no matter how we feel, there is somebody that truly cares for us unconditionally. I'm going to keep on banging this drum because this is like the, the, the whole idea of lifefulness is looking at the spiritual communities. And I just go and think about like what the different practices that you might get in a, in a church of like having a practice where you go and imagine that there's some loving where you go and connect with this idea that you are loved, uh, feel like creating a thing, sense of being safe, like, creating relationships with people who accept you no matter what, having a sort of uh, th that thing you talk about of like predictability and stability, which is needed of like, yeah, going to a place and we are going to do these things one after the other. And it's going to include, oh, it turns out like, it's going to include some movement. It's going to include some breathing exercise. It's going to include some singing. It's going to, uh, uh, it's, it's like a, a system which is designed uh, oh and it's also going to be about how you can align with your values uh at a real bodily level it's this book was just utterly fascinating for me uh from that point of view and this thing of like soothing the amygdala it just kept on coming up again and again and and it, and it was just a concept which was so helpful i uh so i'll often uh talk about this on the pod, like I was diagnosed with ADHD uh, two and a half years ago. And but, so when you said, what did you feel when you got that email? I mean, sometimes emails drive me like absolutely loopy. Like there'll be something which I haven't, like I've forgotten and then I should have done it, but like I, I'm a fucking idiot. You should have done. No wonder this is happening. No wonder what. And it's uh, when you that thing of like actually your amygdala becomes hypersensitive, 
sensitive. And I was like, yeah, it just feels like you've got this, uh, like a little snail with these little sensors, but they're mm. really long and they can mm. bump into everything. Yeah, that's a very good example, you see. So well, thanks. We, we all have, like according to the inner, inner, inner child, um, inner parent and inner adult model, we all have those kind of dialogues going on. So what you just explained is very critical in a parent in your brain, which makes your, and in your inner child just wants to be loved. Your inner child just wants to get things right, just wants to feel safe. And if the inner parent saying you're rubbish, you're not good for who you are, no wonder the child feels, it's basically like beating a child, you know, psychologically there. So what we need to do is we need to use our inner adult, our prefrontal cortex to say, you know, my inner parent is a bit berserk. It's actually been over a lifetime and, you know, kind of not getting things right and not knowing why, because I didn't have a diagnosis back then. I didn't learn that actually was I had valid reasons for actually doing lots of mis spelling mistakes and leaving things last minute and forgetting things, right? So what we need to do, we need to learn better strategies. So you're, now we need to train a loving and caring inner parent in your mind, which with more practice, it will get stronger and stronger and would kind of, you know, sort of win against their critical inner parent or not necessarily win you're just teaching that to use different language right so it doesn't know any other language let's imagine you know i'm not saying in your own in your case but let's imagine we're teaching that you know to use different dialogue look sanderson you actually it's normal for the adhd people to do those mistakes it's another another evidence that you have adhd brilliant and gabby just diagnosed you via pointing out the spelling mistake. Perfect. So now you, you can correct it. And in future, maybe you can find better strategies how to avoid those mistakes. So maybe having James proofreading your... <laughs> your and by phone. the way, I was, I was, when you were talking about the spelling mistake, I only just connected it now to the spelling mistake at the, on the floor. That was not by me. And my spelling is actually quite good, though I am very disorganized about other things. I just want well, to get- Use other that. things. Use other things as an example, right? No. It wasn't him. <laughs> wasn't it? No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, so, so just use whatever example you want in your mind, which you relate to, okay? And then change, change that, um, ex like example, where you kind of used your critical inner parent and what you're, inner adult or your prefrontal cortex could teach the inner parent to tell to your inner child what does your inner child need to hear what would be helpful what would that be helpful to that inner child right and that's that's kind of a long sort of um therapeutical process which unfortunately takes quite a long time for us to sort of retrain in a dialogue i want to ask a question about exactly that which is that i feel like many listeners will have the same experience that i have which is wanting to make a change starting out with a lot of enthusiasm and energy and being able to keep it up for a, a short period of time and then just kind of it kind of falls apart really and mm -hmm. what what is going on there and how can we maintain 
the motivation to keep the change going, even if it's small things, even if I say I'm going to take a little walk every day, you know, I can probably do it for a week. And then I'm like, oh, well, there's a reason I can't do it today. And then suddenly it kind of falls off. Is there secrets, brain secrets to fixing that problem? I, I don't know whether that's a problem, to be honest. We make it a, a problem because we have a belief that in order to succeed, we need to keep on doing those old things, you know, which are deemed to be uh, beneficial. Now, reality is we have a lot of competing interests. We had, have limited amount of time, limited amount of energy. And our brain, especially prefrontal cortex, needs quite a lot of downtime to replenish and recover. So, so sometimes it's just a natural, like you, you, we don't expect people to be able to run marathon every day, right? So, so there is limitations, uh, which we sometimes don't realize because a lot, a lot of what the brain is processing is invisible. Like dealing with emotional, ch emotionally challenging situations, eats up brain resources like hell, right? It, it uses, it completely drains our energy and changes energy levels. But we don't realize that actually that's something the brain is coping with at the moment or having having um, like a lot of tasks to deal with. And, and we, we kind of, which are, can be overwhelming. And suddenly we expect, or oh, we still need to keep on eating healthily and, 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 and uh, exercising. So we have to really sort of manage energy levels. So the most useful thing is to really do weekly assessments. Is there any tasks I could do without this week? Is there anything I could sort of cut down and trim this week? If, if you feel like overstretched, you naturally will drop those useful and helpful habits out of the equation if they are not essential, because we become sort of, we start dealing with emergencies at that time. So if you plan ahead and think what's likely to eat up my time, eat up my energy, uh, and what in the past sort of got in the way for me doing the things I think are beneficial and I want to keep on doing, naturally managing those, you know, other things that can drain your energy would give you more space and time and resourcefulness of prefrontal cortex to do those tasks. If it still doesn't happen, if you kind of done that bit, that's first step that needs to be done. And it's still, you don't feel like you're realizing, well, maybe that's not that, maybe that habit is not very important to you. So assessing uh, is that your uh, desire to do it or is that a should? Did you kind of incorporate that from others? So for example, people say, well, I should be more positive or should exercise more, should be more adventurous in my travels or whatever. Really assessing, is that really what you want to do or is important to you? And in my book, in the, in the chapter on personality, I share how to declutter your shoulds and how to figure out, does it belong to me or is it somebody else's voice? I internalized in my own mind that keeps on sort of criticizing me and, and pestering me. If it is sort of that, that voice, then, you know, we can reduce the power of it. Um, and you kind of, because with the things that are truly, truly, truly important for us, we always find time and energy for. What a great place to end uh, there. One thing that when you're talking about like doing an inventory of your shoulds, there's one great thing which uh, Tony Robinson said when I went to see his uh, thing. He said, stop shooting all, stop shooting all over your life. <laughs> which is exactly, great. Yeah, you're yes. shooting all over your life. 
Uh, the uh, hey, uh, Gabia, which I will now spell white right for uh, ever. Uh, where can people go and find your book? Probably easiest place is Amazon. In whichever country go. you're listening from, you can find it in, in, in Amazon, pretty much in any country. Sometimes it's tricky to find it using the title because, you know, Amazon is a bit funny with the F word. Uh, and I don't blame it, you know, it's fine. Uh, so if you learn how to spell my name. <laughs> G-A-B-I-J-A, boom, T-O-L-E-I-K-Y-T-E. Yeah. Thank you very and much. No don't say it's, not, it's on his screen right now, so you can literally read it off. <laughs> oh, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> ah. <laughs> no, I, I, I believe you. I think it's. I was brilliant. That was impressive, actually. So if you if you yeah if you go if you go uh, on Amazon, you can find it. Now I know a lot of people prefer using now smaller book bookshops, and you can find on 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 in UK we can find in Waterstones. Uh, there is other sites where you can get audio books and so on. Um, so just kind of basically Google. The, that is the most thorough answer to that question we've had so far. And it is that same attitude which has made the book so good. So, uh, guys, and people who are, uh, yeah, just thank you so much for uh, joining the podcast. You're great. Okay. Uh, so, uh, well, look, these the wrap-ups are going to be a bit different. Is that now, because we've got the podcast listeners won't know that before we record the podcast, there's like 15 minutes of movement and singing and meditation that's really fun that always means that when we start we're all a bit giddy and excited and then after it ends we then go and have about half an hour of discussion with the people who are part of the event so uh hey what did you think of uh Gabia? i loved that discussion i just took away so many practical tips about how to make changes that i want to make in my life and it, having that neuroscience framework really helped understand how it might work. That was the thing that really struck me was, often you have these tips about how you should make small changes and do them regularly and stuff. And it's not stuff that is groundbreaking to anyone who's done a lot of trying to change themselves before, but the scientific framework that kind of makes it convincing that, oh, you're training different parts of your brain to work together in a better way. And that totally makes sense to me. And I'm really excited to try it out. I think that's one of the most interesting things about this, other than like all the science, is actually why at the moment we take neuroscience seriously. Because we can't get this from God. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the, like, well, oh, in fact, you can... You can sort of do anything nowadays, uh, he says, whilst holding his fist up to the sky, complaining about the few, but like, you know, everything's, uh, you know, sort of on the table. There's no, <laughs> there's a very pretty broad range of right and wrong. But actually with neuroscience, you're like, okay, this is what's happening in my brain. This is why this isn't just some platitude. This is the sort of cause and effect it, it has. And I think that's like the sort of, there's something about the authority. There's something about the sort of mechanism. I'm just really interested about why it is, particularly at this moment, that this is a language which is really resonating for people. I think it's sexy. You know, there's something cool <laughs> about all those lights lighting up in your brain. One of my favorite studies is one that shows that people will believe the results of a study are more credible if there are pictures of brains in the study, even if the study itself had nothing to do with neuroscience. So like there's clearly like a healthful haze around neuroscience that makes people buy into it. But 
when our, our brain is the source of our experiences, it's also massively plastic. It's changing all the time. And we know that it changes because of the experiences that we have regularly. And so it makes total sense that if you want to change habitual behaviors, you have to start slow and small over a long period of time to, to literally change the connections in your brain. And we don't know that works. So it's just so credible. That's what I like about mm. it. Yeah. And for me, a big thing was that um, uh, amygdala soothing of just like once you see like you've got this that little fucking time bomb in your head, which actually got your best interests at heart. But yeah, like that, that it literally switches off a part of your brain. That's like, it, it switches off the rational part of your brain. How did you like that guys? Uh, yeah, James and I just found it so fascinating that there's something about neuroscience. I think it's really interesting from a sort of point of view of authority. Like, why is it that you know, when you go and hear something from a neuroscientific point of view, it just, uh, like it, it feels like something you should put into action. And it really made me think that like there is, like where do you go and get authority nowadays? It's, you know, it's not from a Bible. It's not from, uh, it could be, by the way, well done for you for stretching your mind and uh, coming along and checking out a podcast, which is probably not on uh, sort of like the advised uh, listening list from the Pope, uh, which there definitely is one. Maybe we are on it. Listen to your enemy. That's a list we're on. Uh, and yeah, it's, I don't know. And it's not even like, you know, a lot of the stuff you sort of know, but there's something about the clarity. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's just the straight up insight. But I think it's uh, also about the language which we're willing to hear in this world. And so it really made me reflect on like, how we talk about lifefulness. Uh, and, you know, at the start, I said, like, what we're doing is a sort of amygdala soothing machine. And that's come across in the uh, in the podcast as well. Because as she's speaking, it's just like, oh, Oh, we're doing that. We're doing that. We're doing that. Oh, that's what that is. I like that idea of when she was speaking at the start of, you know, that feeling of being having a loving figure who is caring for you. Like, yeah, that's going to really help. And it really made me reflect on, you know, actually a lot of the stuff we're doing here, like lifefulness is you know, if you listen to this, you'll know about the six pillars of lifefulness and like all the different theories behind that. But at like its heart, it is just about loving life. And and actually, it's really about sort of developing a relationship with your life of thinking, actually, how I feel about my life is, is the most important relationship there is, guys. Uh, but it really is like, you know, it's going to be how you think about your life is going to affect how you think about everyone in your life is going to affect how you like react to things. It's and so if you're able to like, you know, create a, a loving relationship with it, then you're going to feel that sense of uh, connection, that sense of attachment to it. And you're all those like juicy, like that oxytocin, which can come out when you've got it, then that's just like coming out from life itself. And so, uh, yeah, I am going to keep on coming back to this podcast and I uh, hope you do too. Uh, one way you can come back to it is that we'll undoubtedly discuss it in one of our discussion groups. And uh, yeah, we're now also like when we record the podcast, there's also an opportunity to go and watch them live. And we also have a bit of a community meetup then. So uh, yeah, I... I want to say thank you for listening 
thank you to my mum, my dad, thank you to everyone who's enabled me to get here. Uh, and uh, really hope that you have a, you know, brilliant rest of your day wherever you are. Maybe you're turning in, maybe you're turning on, maybe you're tuning up. Uh, but whatever you're doing, uh, we're sending you lots of love and, and care. And, you know, we mean that, right? Right down from the hairy soles of our feet. Because James and I have got hairy soles of our feet. Who knew? Uh, so thanks for listening. Thanks to James Croft, the amazing, the wonderful, uh, the uh, soon-to-be-slimmer. Uh, James Croft, thanks to Mav Shetty for doing the editing. Thanks to Will Andrews for the artwork. And thanks to Roman Rapak and Miro Schott for the music that you're listening to right now.